Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is The End of Normal, the All-Encompassing Threat of Climate Change, with author and New American National Fellow David Wallace-Wells. Our opening song is Waiting for the End of the World by Elvis Costello and the Attractions from 1978. We fight over beliefs because we truly do not believe or are not certain. And this is one tenet of the so-called Enlightenment, when industrial age philosophers taught us that we cannot be certain of anything, specifically the cause of an effect. And that observable repetition is not proof of continued repetition, because the sun shines today and yesterday and every past day of our lives does not mean it will shine tomorrow. But these are arguments more about how we know what we think we know, what we think we cannot know, and what is even unthinkable. The peculiar joke about the certainty of death and taxes is instructive, as it is one of the clearest lessons of subservience. We should resign ourselves to the whims of unanswerable forces. But there's a trick in that. One of those forces is unanswerable, the other is not. Humans can affect the world we make, even while we may not be able to control the consequences of these interventions. Taxes are an element in the story of governed living that need not exist. Death is the absolute governor of human life. It is a gross error to conflate these two. We must acknowledge we have the power to alter human systems of living, even as we lament our unavoidable deaths. And there's the saying that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. But we must imagine this end if we are to come near to avoiding the other end, which is to say, we must end a human fiction if we are to survive the fact of climate warming and the end of our world. Today we must confront a certainty, an apocalyptic without a moral, a reckoning without a judge. Our planet has been warming and will continue to warm at a rate that guarantees mass suffering and catastrophe as quotidian, which in fact they already are. And we must confront the certainty of human agency in this fact. Burning fossil fuels has brought this into existence. Worse is the fact that over the last several decades we've burned our world with full knowledge of that fact and the likely outcome. We are aboard a black ship to hell, which is the title of Bridget Brophy's 1962 treatise on humanity's self-destructive instincts, illustrating what Freud had called the death drive. Joining us live by phone today is David Wallace-Wells, deputy editor and climate columnist for New York Magazine and author of the new book, The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming an expansion on his clarion call essay of the same name in the July 2017 issue of New York Magazine. Wallace Wells begins his book this way. It is worse, much worse, than you think. And now, The End of Normal with David Wallace Wells on Interchange on WFHB. I've been waiting, waiting for you. David Wallace-Wells, welcome to Interchange. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, I feel like I need to tell a joke after that intro to lighten the mood a bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's bleak out there. It is. So, let, let me first just thank you for your book. Thank you for the article in 2017 and the, the book that's an expansion on that as well. Uh, it's an essential book. It's a necessary book, and I do hope everyone reads it. Thanks again. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm just trying to do my little part. It seems, you know, the moment really demands action on all fronts from all people. So... 
um, I'm a journalist, and the least I can do is tell the story as I see it. Uh, now, it's a uh, it's devastating, really. I think it's one of those things that's hard to get your head around. We talk about this a little bit, trying to see everything we need to see. It's very difficult. We had uh, uh, Dar Jamail on here with The End of Ice, another book that literally, in the end, really just counsels grief. Um, and uh, I'd recommend that book as well. Uh, but let's let's jump into your introduction. I think on page four of the introduction, which you call Cascades, which is a cascading uh, list of all the things that are that are happening and that will continue to happen, that will get worse uh, as warming continues. Uh, you note the commonplace of stories, and you you open here with the, being a journalist and telling stories. Um, it's something like I, I suppose an attempt to to open people's eyes in the way Rachel Carson might have with Silent Spring. Um, That book, interestingly, started with fable, with a fable, while your book kind of recounts facts that read like fables. I think you note the uh, discovery of a, was it a reindeer or something that had anthrax in it and got killed a boy? Yeah, yeah. So the permafrost. In yeah, permafrost. Area. Yeah. So it's um, in in Carson's work. It's like a fable that's supposed to scare us in some sense, right? Imagining a silent spring, no uh, life in nature due to pesticide and herbicide use. Uh, but the fables turn out to be commonplace stories now and and factual that you've discovered in your research. And ultimately, uh, in the end, I think it is about how we're telling ourselves these stories uh, as they are true, and we're still trying to figure out how to. Apply approach them. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I thought a lot, quite a lot about the way that fables work almost structurally and the way that they imply a distance between the story being told and the experience of the people, the person, people contemplating it. Um, it's almost like we're in a, you know, in a natural history museum walking past a diorama. And when we're looking at that diorama of, you know, bears in their environment or, um, wolves on the prowl, we know that there's a glass screen between us, and we know, in addition to learning something about the natural world that's presented there, we also are being taught about our own distance from or sort of life outside of that natural world. And I think for so long, which is to say really practically speaking, all of human history, we've told ourselves stories about the natural world as a way of you know, as a, as a sort of teaching tool, um, as a way of passing along morals and allegories. And I think that's been valuable in a certain way. It, it certainly um, helped us, you know, remember what is important about um, the natural world and valuable about it. Um, but it also, I think, led us to believe, um, those of us living in a kind of, in the far reaches of the modern world, like I do in New York City, um, that nature was something that was happening elsewhere, um, that we lived outside of it, that we were protected from it, that um, modern life was a fortress against its forces, and that while we might worry about something like climate change, um, really it was a, a story that would be unfolding elsewhere, affecting other kinds of people, and that um, surely the modern world wouldn't be profoundly perturbed or disturbed by its forces. But, you know, the, the deeper you get in the research, the more time you spend um, speaking to scientists and, and, you know, reading academic papers and, and um, piecing all these pieces together. You see that, you know, there's, there's no escaping this story. It's, um, it's not compartmentalizable. It's not localizable. It's everywhere because nature is everywhere. And even though I walk down the concrete streets in New York City, look up at these steel skyscrapers and feel like I'm living outside of nature in the modern world, 
you know, the truth is we all live within nature. I mean, that sounds like a naive revelation, but for me it was a true, profound revelation. And when that system is disturbed, which it is being disturbed quite profoundly at the moment, um, all of our lives will change too. So that's not just a matter of contemplating extreme weather or droughts and famines. It's not even a matter just of thinking about the way that climate change could affect economic activity or conflict, where there are really interesting and harrowing um, connections. But the way that we might evolve our politics and our geopolitics, um, the way that we might evolve our storytelling, um, as you mentioned, our culture more generally, the way our we may have our, um, our sense of our place in history and our sense of our place in nature totally transformed by this force. That's just how big and intense and all-encompassing as uh, as it is as a story and you know it's it's uh, from a certain perspective um i think you know the most profound most urgent most demanding um grandest story that humans have ever lived through um when you realize that you know 30 um in the last 30 years we've done more damage produced more emissions from the burning of fossil fuels than we managed in all of human history that came before us we've done as much damage in the last 30 years as we've done in all the millennia that came before that. And um, we now have about that much time to secure a livable future for ourselves, which means that the, that entire story, bringing the planet from the stable situation it was in 30 years ago to the brink of a catastrophe where we are now, and then hopefully securing some more prosperous, more fulfilling future for ourselves, all of that story, both parts of that story, will be contained in my lifetime. And, you know, that's a, that's a drama that we used to only recognize in mythology and theology, and yet we find ourselves living in it today, not just as observers, um, but as protagonists. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is Doug Storm speaking via phone with David Wallace-Wells, a national fellow of the nonpartisan think tank New America, deputy editor and climate columnist for New York Magazine, and author of the new book, The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. Uh, there's a lot in your book, David. It's, uh, it's ridiculously full, as I said already, of kind of scary revelations, even if you've been following climate, uh, even in The Guardian, or if you di- if you've di- dive into a lot of the research yourself, uh, it's like one chapter after another that just pretty much lays out all the ways in which there it's not one thing, it's many things happening at once. But let's, let's assume that everyone here listening um, understands and uh, knows warming is incontrovertible. We know ice is melting, the Great Barrier Reef is dying. We know how much that will affect marine life. We know the permafrost is melting, releasing methane, uh, at, uh, which has a greater effect on warming than carbon dioxide. We know temperatures in many populated areas have already reached dangerous and deadly highs. Insects are dying. The bulk of mammals on the planet by weight are humans and livestock with something like only 4% considered wild. Warming to certain levels is baked in because of fossil fuels burned and CO2 released in the past, which hasn't entered the atmosphere, having been sequestered in oceans. That forests are dying and burning. Forests are still being cut down for grazing land and other agricultural use and so on. And here we continue a pace, right? <laughs> this is the issue. We know all these things have already had these massive, they're results of these massive detrimental effects of warming, and they keep looping and, and cascading and having feedback effects, and yet we continue to do exactly what we've been doing, and worse. Which is nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's, this, there was a report today um, <clears throat> that found that not only have we reached a new record carbon concentration um, in the planet, but that 
the last year's increase, the increase in 2018, was the fastest increase on record. So we are not only not moving in the right direction, we're not only moving in the wrong direction, we're moving in the wrong direction faster and faster and faster every year. Um, and that's really, it's an indictment of our um, narcissism, short-sightedness, and selfishness as individuals, as political bodies, as political actors, as nations, as a geopolitical order, and really ultimately as a species. You know, I mentioned we've done as much damage in the last 30 years um, as we managed in all of the history of human life before then. That 30 years is since Al Gore published his first book on warming. It's since the UN established its climate change panel, the IPCC. Um, I write in the book, it's since the premiere of Seinfeld. This is not all that long ago, and we have done all of this damage Having heard those reports from Al Gore, from James Hansen, the climate scientist who just first testified in front of Congress, from Bill McKibben, from the UN IPCC, we knew everything we needed to know 30 years ago, and we've done worse than nothing in the years since. So part of what I'm trying to do in the book is explore why that is. I mean, I, I paint a pretty bleak picture of what would happen to the planet and the way that we live on it if we continue to do nothing. But I also try to explore some of the, um, what I think of as the kind of humanity side of the climate change story. Um, going forward, how will it will affect the way that we organize socially, the way that we relate to one another, um, the way that we think of our place in the march of time, and whether we think of the future as, a, as a, um, an arrow of progress or the opposite. But I also do a little bit of reflecting on why, why and how it is we've gotten to this point and why we've been so unable to respond to what anyone who looks at the science would tell you is the genuinely most urgent, um, all-encompassing existential threat that humanity has ever faced. Now, you, you know, the proliferation of nuclear weapons is, uh, is a rival to climate change, but um, we have responded quite dramatically to that threat, and we've done very, very little um, in response to climate over the last few decades. And, you know, I think part of that is the fact that all of us, even even me, even you, um, we have emotional reflexes and, and biases that make us reluctant to stare squarely in the face of the science and really take seriously bleak projections for the future and respond in kind. I think we also have a kind of a st status quo bias and would prefer not to dramatically change anything if we could avoid it and, in fact, choose to see things as much more comfortable than they are in order to avoid taking meaningful action. Unfortunately, those same biases and prejudices also hold at the political level, um, where they're compounded by, you know, uh, they were compounded by a generation of economic thinking that held that um, action would be quite expensive on climate and that if our policy was meant to be oriented around economic growth, which it has been for a while now, that we should better... Um, you know, kind of sit on our hands and let the story play out. I think that, that conventional wisdom has changed quite a bit in the last few years, and most economists would now say it would be much better for us to take action faster rather than sooner. And I think we're likely to see new, you know, new policy movement there as a result. But for a long time, um, we were really inert in our response, in part because we really valued economic growth over um, the humanitarian, you know, needs um, or, you know, the, the risk, humanitarian risks of climate change. And we understood that those were um, opposed to one another. They don't need to be, but that was the thinking for a long time. And then there's also the, the problem at the geopolitical level, which is to say that, 
even if all the leaders of all the nations of the world agreed that climate action was really necessary and even on a very short time scale, um, still each individual nation would be incentivized to slow walk their action and let the rest of the world clean up the mess. And that's, you know, that's because, you know, take the example of California. I, I was just doing some reporting on the California wildfires, which were horrifying and, um, just to tell you a little bit about how that story is unfolding, it's just one story among many, many, many. But, you know, I spoke to the mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti. He's 48 years old. The year he was born, 60,000 acres of forest were burned in California. The year he was elected mayor, 2013, 600,000 acres were burned. The year he was reelected mayor in 2017, 1.2 million acres were burned. And the year he, last year, 2018, 1.9 million acres were burned. Um, so we're, we're on this incredible upward trajectory, but that state actually can't do much to change their what they're dealing with with climate change, no matter how aggressively they um, they input, you know, they, they change their um, their carbon emissions because. The United States is only 15% of the problem, and California is only a sliver of the United States part of the emissions problem. So if California tomorrow completely zero out on their emissions, probably their wildfire landscape would look basically the same for the next decade or two, unless absolutely every other community of every other nation in the world took action at the same speed. And I think that's the perverse, grotesque, and unfortunate logic that's prevailing when we think about um, tackling this issue globally and see that, you know, we've signed the Paris Accords, every nation of the world signed the Paris Accords um, in 2016. No nation in the entire world is on track to meet those commitments today, just three years later. And even if we did meet them, they would only bring us to about 3.2 degrees of warming, which would mean probably hundreds of millions of climate refugees, maybe 70% more war than we see today, uh, a you know, global economy by the end of the century that was maybe 15% smaller than it would be without climate change, which is an impact that's just as deep as the Great Depression, and it would be permanent, um, and many other impacts on public health and cognitive development and air pollution, you know, um, down the line. So at every level of theoretical action, we're kind of stymied by these, um, by these cognitive biases and cognitive prejudices that um, push us away from taking action. And that's one reason why I'm actually, I've actually been really exhilarated and thrilled to see so much movement politically on climate over the last nine months. You know, if you had told me a year ago that we'd be seeing, you know, climate strikes with hundreds of thousands or millions of school children every week across Europe or Extinction Rebellion forcing um, British Parliament to declare a climate emergency or in the U.S. the Sunrise Movement um, putting forward the Green New Deal and everything that that contains, um, you know, I, I literally wouldn't have believed you. I, it felt like the world was way too slow moving on this issue and probably that was going to be a feature of our response um no matter what but it turns out actually that um sometimes things can change quite quickly by any political science standard i think things are moving incredibly rapidly the problem is you know the science says it needs to move faster still mm -hmm. let's take a break right now david this is uh interestingly i've chosen kyoto now which is the prior uh <laughs> prior sort of uh, international agreement for uh climate issues uh, kyoto now by punk band bad religion off their 2002 release the process of belief uh the main goal the, of the kyoto protocol is to control emissions of the main anthropogenic human emitted greenhouse gases including carbon dioxide and methane stay with us
a matter of passions. No, not the science picture kind. It's all about ignorance and greed and miracles for the blind. The media parading, disjointed politics, founded on petrochemical plunder, and we're its hostages. If you stand a reason, you're in the game. The rules may be elusive, but our pieces are the same. And you know if one goes down, we all go down as well. The balance is precarious, as anyone can tell. This world's going to hell. Support for WFHB comes from the Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas. In-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles at limestonepost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a mission. Support for WFHB also comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. You're listening to Interchange on Community Radio WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our guest today is David Wallace-Wells, author of a new book on the dire state of the planet for sustaining life. It's called The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. David is deputy editor of New York Magazine and their climate columnist. Hey, you're, you're live in the city there. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, so it uh, struck me as amusing. I was working for a used book, not a used bookstore, an actual uh, a bookstore in Clayton, Missouri. Um, oh my gosh, so long ago. Right at the end of nature, Bill McKibben's book, I forget when it came out, 86, 89, 88, something like that. Yeah. Um, and he actually was uh, working in the business book section, and we had uh, purchased, or uh, uh, Monsanto, the Monsanto company had purchased some 30, 40, 50 copies of The End of Nature for a Bill McKibben speech, you know, t- talk and book signing at Monsanto. So I actually heard him speak at Monsanto <laughs> when, when that book came out. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, like Rachel Carson. Yeah, I don't book. think you would accept that invitation. <laughs> 
I don't think so either. That's pretty fascinating. Um, so we obviously there's a lot here. Again, one of the things that that we struggle with in this kind of conversation or in in any conversation that has so many aspects to it is trying to get our head around uh, how we deal with it. You know, you talk about the way in which we have to see these things as interrelated. One of the things that Rachel Carson's book does more than say DDT is bad. It says, look at how these things work together. You know, look at how this one thing you do affects other things you do. This doesn't seem like uh, some amazing revelation, but it does seem like it's never really sunk into people that activities we do uh, have effects greater than, you know, flipping on the light switch and getting light in your room. Um, it, it means other things. Other things happen when you do those things. So it's one of those difficulties of trying to understand the, the, the interactions of all these various uh, climate disruptions. Yeah, I think it gets back to something I was talking about a minute ago, which is that we have a kind of, um, we would like to see our own, um, the, the, our conduct in the world as, um, you know, not imposing some burden or cost on the future or on those living elsewhere on the planet today. We want to believe that we can make choices based entirely out of our own self-interest and not have to, um, you know, and not, and not be... Um, guilty of for any anything that comes downstream from that but you know it's also the case that it's simply a hard system to literally wrap your head around i mean carbon is part of nearly everything that we do in the modern world the modern economy um even those of us who are quite vocal and outspoken and preoccupied with the problem of climate change still live in many ways um as part of a system that is producing carbon and in general i think that that's um you know i think that that's a sign of just how pervasive the problem is. Um, it's also, to me, a sign of what kind of, what set of solutions, what sort of policy response we um, we need to focus on. Because, you know, there there is a fair amount of talk about, um, especially on the environmental left, about how we can cut our own individual emissions and, and reduce our carbon footprints. And I think that those initiatives are valuable for a few reasons. You know, they, I think people should live by their own values, that they'll be happier, more um, satisfied, more proud of their own lives if they do. I think doing so, you know, by traveling less, by eating less red meat, et cetera, can signal to others around them and ideally to policymakers that prosperous, fulfilling lives are possible um, still within the boundaries of climate responsibility. And I think that they can, therefore, like be a kind of a, a way station to um, what we really need which is action at the policy level. Because when I look at um, what individual action can do and what real, even dramatic changes in um, consumption patterns and, and lifestyle choices will bring, I see those as, as um, really paling in comparison to what can be achieved through policy change. And to explain what I mean by that a little bit more, you know, I start from the supposition, which isn't really a supposition, it's a scientific fact, that in order to stabilize the climate at any temperature, even a quite hellish, say, four or five degrees um, above pre-industrial temperatures, we need to not just reduce our emissions, we need to entirely zero them out. So if we're at four degrees of warming 
we're dealing with, you know, $600 trillion in global climate damages. That's twice as much wealth as exists in the world today. It would mean that there would be um, places on the planet that could be hit by six climate-driven natural disasters at once. It would mean, as I mentioned earlier, twice as much war, hundreds of millions of climate refugees, totally scrambled political system by all of those impacts. If we were at that place, even stabilizing the planet at that level, at that amount of warming, would require totally zeroing out on carbon. If we produced any carbon at all, even a sliver of the amount that we're producing today, we would continue to heat the planet additionally and bring, be bringing about more intense suffering down the line. And so if you think, you know, if you can imagine a world in which the entire planet, every single person on it, every single nation, electively gives up airplane travel over the next few decades, um, or every single person on the entire planet goes vegan and entirely gives up um, meat eating, for instance, um, then I think it's possible to imagine a world in which we solve this problem through um, individual actions. But from my perspective, that is simply a fantasy. And if we want to zero out on emissions entirely, if we need to zero out on emissions entirely, that means, for instance, doing significant R&D into planes that um, are carbon neutral or carbon free, electric plans, um, you know, legislating that they be built, legislating that airlines fly them, and legislating that the old kinds of planes are retired in relatively short order. If we're talking about reducing, you know, the, the carbon footprint of beef, we know that having cattle graze in a slightly different way um, than they are typically today can turn cattle farming from a carbon source to a carbon sink, but there's no um, policy pressure at the moment to make farmers do it that way. Or to take another example, we know that if we feed cattle seaweed, uh, just a little bit of seaweed, their methane emissions, which are a big part of why there are a carbon problem in the first place, um, can be reduced by 95 or 99%. And yet, so in order to achieve a reduction, um, a total reduction of carbon emissions from sectors like these, we need a policy response. The problem is simply too big to solve through individual action. And that's why when people ask me what they can do and how they can, how, how they can make a difference, how they can change their own lives, I always say by far the most important thing is to take political action. You know, if, um, if there's one thing you can do, it's to vote for leaders at every level, not just at the national level, not just in terms of the presidential race, um, but at every level who take seriously the threat of climate change and want to deploy a policy that's serious about addressing it, and then hold those people to account when they're in office. Um, there's more you can do beyond that, but that is not a difficult ask as far as I'm concerned. And it is also happily the most significant contribution that anybody can make that far outweighs anything you can achieve through the way that you eat or the way that you travel or whether you buy an electric car or not. Politics is actually that powerful. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. My guest is David Wallace-Wells, author of the new book, on the uninhabitable earth life after warming. Now, you mentioned, David, uh, in your book and uh, everywhere you talk, though, the part of the issue here that we deal with is that when we talk about we, you and I, on this radio program or anywhere in this particular country, the we is pretty small uh, relatively, right? And part of the issues that we confront now is this is global climate change. These are global issues. These are industrialization issues. We have countries that are really just coming online in terms of industrialization and energy use, uh, fossil fu- fuel use, etc. So that's that's a bigger problem, isn't it, than even trying to understand what the U.S. politics is? Yeah, the geopolitical situation is really complicated, um, and it's the part of the story that I actually find uh, myself least hopeful about or most worried about. Um, 
you know, with the protest movements and the policy movement that we've seen over the last year or so, you know, I, I do see a lot of um, reason for optimism at the national level. But I don't yet see a system that can organize that energy and that momentum into um, a real cooperative framework that holds everyone to account. Now, we have a major conference coming up um, in September that was meant to be the sort of sequel to the Paris uh, conference in which nations of the world are theoretically going to be making bigger commitments to carbon reduction than they did the last time around. Of course, as I mentioned earlier, none of these nations have honored those commitments um, from the first round, so we'll see what happens. And it's also the case that... um, you know, an interesting dynamic is playing out whereby, um, you know, last week we had two elections that in a certain way hung on climate. There was the Australian um, election for prime minister in which the um, right-wing uh, standing prime minister was re-elected to much, of the, much to the surprise of the Australian press um, who thought that he was um, almost certain to lose in a, after a campaign that was waged almost entirely on climate issues. This is a kind of a significant setback and makes us, um, all of us, worried about what is going to happen in our own countries when these, um, when these issues really come front and center and, you know, in our voting. But at the same time, the, um, the EU elections that were held across Europe um, scored a really significant victory for the Green Party. Um, actually, there's a way of reading those, those results that show the Green Party as sort of the biggest story coming out of that election and maybe the biggest winner of that, um, of that election. And so there's this interesting dynamic um, playing out whereby we may be more comfortable um, with climate action at the international scale than we are, say, in the context of the EU, than we are um, when it comes to domestic policies, which is what um, Australia was really arguing over. And I think the the larger um, cooperative network that we can stitch together um, in which to enact some of these climate policies such that we're not just talking about the EU, but we're really talking about the global network, probably the better off we'll be. Um, I think people will be more responsive to, um, to you know, pledges from individual nations, more, um, more open to that, if they know that their neighbors are behaving in the same way. On the other hand, as I said earlier, you know, the Paris Accords don't give us much reason for hope. They are, I don't think you could say that they're a, a final failure yet, just three years in. But it's certainly the case that progress has been much slower than was hoped for um, with many nations of the world, in fact, all of the nations of the world, betraying those commitments. And, you know, short of instituting some kind of um, sanction punishment or even more intense um, nation-to-nation pressure to hold nations to account, I don't know how we're going to overcome some of those hurdles. Um, My hope is that, you know, the sort of um, the self-interest of of the species um, will bring us towards... um, more humane, more engaged, um, and more productive action on climate. And yet, you know, as we've been talking about, the last 30 years have given us really very little reason for optimism on, on any of those fronts. Yeah, it's really difficult, to, you know, as you continue to talk about the problems, to, to cast any frame that, 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 that is um, 
I, I, I hesitate to even use the word hopeful. Um, one of the things that you confront when you do a lot of reading in, in the climate change and climate disruption uh, science, if you, especially if you go into any of the, the kind of calculations for two degrees, three degrees, four degrees, et cetera, et cetera, and the unpredictable nature of any of the warming effects that happen at those levels, which then increase warming, uh, is is the um, I guess the realization on a, from a lot of these people, and I, I guess I'll ask you this as well, but from a lot of these people who who have basically said that you need to learn to grieve for the end of life, you know, grieve for the end of if not life of civilization. One of the issues that we confront is that as you talk, we're talking about nations that are often dedicated to profit, dedicated to resource extraction, dedicated to capital, get dedicated to markets. One of the ideologies or biases that we are stuck with or that has kind of been a part of our life for so long is this idea that the market uh, balances things in the in, in a good way, right? The invisible hand will give us goodness even in our evil acts because because the market will figure it out. And this is has, has sort of taught us this passivity of consumerism. And so there's this sense that, you know, what what's going to happen um, isn't going to be what we do, but rather what happens to us. Now, that's a resignation, as I mentioned at the beginning, and I know that that's not where you want to be. I know it's not where you end your book, um, but multiple, you know, multiple books I read are basically, you know, these things are ending. There's no doubt the Great Barrier Reef will be will be entirely bleached uh, within a very short time. Uh, I don't, I, it's less than 10 years, I believe. So, um, you know, these things are massive and they're going to make massive changes happen more quickly than I think we're ready. Uh, not even close to ready, obviously, but more quickly than we're, I think, cognitively going to be able to handle it. Yeah, for me, um, the, it's a really important perspective to hold in mind that this is not a binary system, which is to say, you know, climate change is not a matter of whether it's here or not. It's not a matter of passing into some, beyond some threshold past which, you know, it's all over, civilization is lost, and, and nature is ruined. You know, we are inevitably going to be living in a warmer world that is almost certainly uglier, um, more competitive, um, more animated by resource scarcity, um, more denuded of natural bounty, um, and uh, full of more pollution that is damaging to us and, um, you know, impinging our ability to live um, happily, happily um, than we would like. But there is also an incredible spectrum of possibilities um, from, say, two degrees of warming, which, you know, the scientists of the world call catastrophic warming and... And that we call best, best case scenario now, right? This is best case that? scenario. That's, I said two degrees now is best case scenario. I think it's basically our best case scenario. And, and, and you know, it's, it's a level of warming that scientists a generation ago would have thought was unconscionable. And now we're almost certainly, probably certainly, going to be getting at least that amount of warming. But we could also end up at three degrees, which would make things dramatically worse than that. And we could end up at four degrees, which would make things dramatically worse than that. And on and on and on. And no matter where we are on that spectrum, we will always bear the responsibility for um, determining the climate of the next, the planet's next decade, because at least for the very foreseeable future, the main driver of climate change is how much carbon we put into the air, which is to say that we have control over it. You know, when I talk about some of these outcomes, when I talk about 
you know, the, the global economic impacts, which are terrifying, or the effect on grain yields, which, you know, our, our grains could be half as bountiful as they are today, and we'd be using them to feed 50% more people, um, or the, the air pollution impacts, which just to two degrees would produce 153 million additional deaths um, just from air pollution. Um, these are, you know, these are, these are incredibly terrifying, overwhelming um, data points, and yet they are also ultimately a reflection of our power over the climate. Because if we get to those levels of warming and produce those horrifying impacts, it will be because of what we do from here on out. We will be bringing those scenarios into being. And theoretically, at least, we could choose to not bring those scenarios into being by behaving differently. I think that there's a way of looking at all of this horrifying information, all of these terrifying projections, and feeling empowered by them. Um, because really they are just a reminder that we are in control of the system and you know i hear sometimes from you know not not deniers exactly but but climate skeptics who who say you know okay the, the planet's warming i can see the figures but it's not human caused this is just a natural um fluctuation in the temperature of the planet and you know i say to them a few different things the first is um if you took the most rudimentary understanding of the greenhouse effect that was first um, articulated in the middle of the 19th century and input to that equation how much carbon we've added to the atmosphere, you would get a very precise prediction for the amount of temperature increase we've had. So I don't think we need to go around looking for alternative explanations for what, um, what's happening here. It's very, it, was, it was predicted, and the path of warming has matched that prediction precisely, which is exactly what you look for when you're trying to prove um, the scientific hypothesis. But secondarily, it is true that the planet has warmed and cooled in the past, um, but we are already entirely outside the window of temperatures that enclose all of human history, which means you and I are now walking on a planet that is already hotter than any planet ever walked on by any human before. It also means that everything that we know of as human history, which is to say not just what we know of as history history, but prehistory, human evolution, the development of agriculture, the rise of civilization of any kind, the rise of modern civilization, industrialization, globalization, everything that we know about the way that we relate to one another as social beings, as political beings, as cultural beings, all of those things arose under climate conditions which no longer prevail. It's as though we've landed on an entirely different planet with entirely different climate conditions, and those climate conditions are going to continue to change, maybe even at accelerating speeds. And we're trying to figure out how much of what we've brought with us, not just like the goods we've brought with us, but the culture that we've brought with us, the political organizations we've brought with us, the culture that we've brought with us, um, how much of that can survive these new, this new world. Um, and while it is the case that the planet has been warmer than this in the past, it is also the case that every time that there, there were these warming episodes like the ones that we're um, seeing now, it led to what are called mass extinctions, in which as, much, as many as 95 or 97 percent of all life on Earth died. Um, now, if that's happening now, which it is, we're now living through a sixth mass, ex mass extinction, 60 um, percent of all um, vertebrate mammals have died since 1970, according to the World Wildlife Fund. Um, David, should, David, let's take a quick break. Before, more. David, let's take a quick break before we oh. continue. Let's, that's okay. Let's, uh, let's take w one last break here, before, and then we'll come back and, and continue with this uh, this topic. It's uh, this is "Monkey Gone to Heaven" by the Pixies off their 1989 album "Doolittle." When we return, David Wallace Wells uh, will uh, talk more about uh, climate change. Stay with us. There was a guy. Oh, God. 
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. We're speaking with David Wallace-Wells, National Fellow of the Nonpartisan Think Tank New America, Deputy Editor and Climate Columnist for New York Magazine, author of the new book, The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. Well, I'm sad to have the world end, as I really love that Pixies song. It's uh, one of those things in which that's that's obviously a um, not a serious comment, although it is a serious comment, David. <laughs> I, d- I do like that Pixie song, and the world has to change in a lot of ways. I think one of the issues for me is that uh, trying to understand these changes or trying to understand the ways that life is going to change um, is is not quite understanding the ways in which the West, or and, and I use that in quotes, right, the West, or what we believe are industrial, are industrial economies, industrial nations, the, the West, like the U.S. Uh, and Great Britain, etc., uh, capitalist economies, uh, but also just anyone who's sort of developed in, in this way, uh, that the world that you're talking about, you know, the climate uh, disruption and change and, and this warming that, that sort of throws us all into a kind 
kind of uh, catastrophe of food shocks um, where we simply don't have any clue how to deal with those things. You know, a large portion of the world that's already, you know, existing has been living in this way for quite some time. A large portion of the world has been uh, has had their resources taken from them for such a long time to pollute the world. So there is a weird sort of sense, and I don't mean this, I don't really think this for myself, I don't want to incur the wrath of climate catastrophe and think I deserve it as a Westerner, but there's a part of me that feels that way. Do you understand what I'm saying when I say that? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think um, I think one thing that will happen over the next few decades is that we'll start to be reckoning with some of these responsibilities um, in you know to the extent that we are capable of psychologically and emotionally i think personally i find it easier to think about those responsibilities at the level of um nations than i do at the level of individuals because while i think that certainly all of us um have some climate guilt on us um and certainly some of us have you know say the ceos of exxon uh, have considerably more climate guilt than you and i might um i also think that um it's a little bit hard to lay all of that blame at the level of the, of the individual as, for some of the same reasons as i was m- illustrating earlier trying to illustrate earlier that it's hard to solve the problem entirely through individual action sure. i think it's hard to explain the problem indivi- uh, entirely through individual choices but you know, at the level of nations, I think that some of these are really quite profound questions. You know, the um, the British Empire was forged on the basis of fossil fuels. Um, the nation, the citizens of that nation got extremely wealthy by any global standard as a result of that industrialized process. That empire um, operated in part by um, conquering and then ruling over and extracting the wealth of um, India and Bangladesh, which are today nations that are poised to be hit most intensely um, by the force of climate change in the coming century. And, um, you know, Bangladesh is scheduled to basically flood over the next few decades. Many of the biggest cities in India will become unlivably hot um, by 2050. And in addition to their agricultural yield suffering and their river flooding and, and all the rest of it. And the question then becomes, you know, what is the responsibility of a nation like the UK to these nations um, in terms of, for instance, um, opening up their arms for those climate refugees who are produced, or in terms of subsidizing and supporting infrastructure projects that could protect those people who live there already, or any number of other ways that they might make um, amends for their role in the Industrial Revolution. A similar thing you know, applies to the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, where Saudi Arabia was basically made into a kind of client state of the U.S. and produced an enormous amount of oil um, at our behest um, to serve our economy, more or less. And now it's the case that, you know, you won't be able to go on pilgrimage to Mecca um, as soon as a decade or two from now because it'll just simply be too hot and you could die. So what's the relationship of, you know, of responsibility between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia there? Or could you say that Saudi Arabia is the responsible party and because they've extracted all of that oil um, and sold it around the world for profit, that they are ones who owe climate reparations to other nations of the world, say the Marshall Islands um, or, um, you know, the Seychelles, um, which are already um, nearly underwater. Um, and I think that you can see some glimmer of that, actually, in a weird way, in the public posture of MBS, the leader of, of Saudi Arabia, who's a, a grotesque figure in many ways, been a brutal dictator. And he, you know, he's not technically the leader of the nation, but he's sort of putatively the leader of the nation. And he said that he needs his... Um, he needs the country's economy to be entirely off oil by 2050 and probably mostly off oil by 2030. I think that contains some wisdom um, that, you know, 
a country like that won't be able to continue producing fossil fuels as recklessly as they have and still expect a seat at the community of nations. I think that our geopolitics is likely to evolve in exactly that direction, maybe as soon as in the next decade or so, where we simply won't accept bad behavior on climate change in the same way that at least nominally we don't accept bad behavior on human rights today. And, you know, I say I think over the next couple of decades we're going to be evolving a, a global political order that really puts climate change front and center. I don't know exactly what shape that order will have, whether it will be, you know, more on the um, utopian green lefty end of the spectrum or whether it'll be on the sort of eco-fascist every nation for itself end of the spectrum. But I do think that um, this will be a bigger, bigger part of the rivalries between nations and the way that nations think about their role in the world and their, and their relationship to one another and their obligations to their own citizens. And I think we will start to see um, many more conflicts conducted through the prism of, of climate in much the same way that in the aftermath of, of World War II, um, we saw many more of our international relations conducted through the principle of um, human rights and peace and prosperity, even if those were often alibis for bad behavior. It was, it was still the sort of rhetorical basis for any international, um, you know, any international activity. And you know, it sounds crazy to say that a few decades from now we could have, say, a climate war with, you know, China invading a nation like Brazil to prevent a figure like Jair Bolsonaro from deforesting the Amazon or something like that. It seems ripped from science fiction, and in a certain way it is. On the other hand, if you had said to someone in the 1920s in Europe that, you know, we'd have an international order that so prized human rights that we would go to war to protect the dignity of citizens that were under threat from a brutal dictator in that nation, you know, they would have laughed at you too. Um, and some of those wars probably shouldn't have been fought. Some of them were bad ideas. Some of them were just, as I said earlier, like an alibi for other kinds of bad behavior. But they did, um, they were the, the, the stated public values of our international order. And I think we will soon get to a place where climate change is operating in the same way because it is that big a story, that impactful, that, um, that everywhere. And, um, you know, we don't yet know exactly what that world will look like, but I think it will be very different from the one that we were living in as recently as a decade or two ago. Well, it is hard to imagine reparations in my head in terms of trying to get an actual reparation before all these things happen, <laughs> before warming makes reparations somewhat irrelevant. Uh, reparations meaning we could, you know, move out everybody in New York City and, and let the people of the global south move north or something. Not New York City because it's going to be wet too. But, uh, you know, where, wherever there's a place to move, we should, you know, you, reparations for me are on that scale, you know, where, where you'd have to move people out of a country uh, that was dying and had been served thus by by the the you know fossil fuel burning countries and and sort of have the fossil fuel burning co- countries ha- have their populations kicked out. That's about the best you could do for reparations in my mind. Real quickly though, uh, uh, David, what is your what's your greatest worry in terms of these particular cascades? We've got about two minutes for uh, what you think is the 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 big problem. I know the all these problems matter together. I know that they're going to sort of uh, feedback and and make each other worse. But if there's one thing that's super uh, kind of the bellwether for you, you're like, oh, that's the albedo effect or something like that. What is the thing that's really sort of started to to really keep you up? Well, honestly, it's it's not the direct climate impacts. It's the the way that those shocks are going to be felt through the humanity side of the way that we live. So I, I would say political disarray is really the most mm. horrifying thing. And, you know, if you were to imagine a politics that would arise out of um, a sense of 
ecological de- degradation and, and resource scarcity, you'd imagine one that was motivated by um, nationalism, right. a sense of national self-interest, um, and by a growing zero-sum view of what international cooperation could be like, rather than the positive-sum view that we had in the past. And I don't think it's a surprise that we're seeing a rise of exactly that kind of politics now, right. and I don't think we should be surprised if we see more of it in the in the decades ahead. I think that that's especially concerning because, you know, if you had to imagine a threat that was big enough to call into being a true global international order, a cooperative network, climate change would be it because it affects everyone, even if it affects us unequally. And yet, just as we're facing the crisis point of that crisis, we are retreating from those cooperative agreements, inventing a new kind of politics that is dominated by a more narrow sense of self-interest, and making ourselves um, less and less likely to actually address the problem at the scale that it demands to be addressed. So all of that together is concerning, and I haven't even talked about the way that the, um, you know, the refugee crisis right. has scrambled all of European politics, and we're scheduled to have a refugee crisis, according to the UN, probably 200 times as big at least as the Syrian refugee crisis that has completely um, transformed European politics. Yeah, that's uh, that's one that we kind of keep forgetting, that uh, the changes that will happen in the, in the climate are spurred to these social upheavals and uh, not even you, you can't even call them unrest they're simply people no longer able to live where they were living um, so this uh, it is a frightening uh, scenario frightening thing that I think uh, does uh, come to pass will come to pass and we'll have to deal with it of course or, or have it dealt with us in some ways the um, the idea of um, the global order is a scary one as well because as you say it can flip into the right uh, of that spectrum you know a global climate uh, authoritarian or totalitarian government as well. And I do think, as you say, I think politics as it's been developing has been developed internally in ways that I think do recognize climate catastrophe, that, you know, the nationalism that's been spurred on has been to a purpose uh, to sort of create those particular narrow viewpoints so that we we, again, each country, or this one in particular, can, you know, neglect and keep out as many people as possible, and not just, you know, not in the name of climate catastrophe, but in the name of of nationalism, as you say. Yeah, it's... um, Yeah, go ahead. It it can be quite bleak out there. Yeah, it is. (laughs) But I also also think it's important to keep in mind that the whole system is in our control, and and, um, everything is within our power. You know, as as you said earlier, there's a, a big open question about what that we is and right. where you know how we how we adjudicate responsibility and how we embrace responsibility but if you can bring your get yourself to a place where you're thinking really uh, from about the problem as a at the species level um, it doesn't seem actually all that hard to solve. The problem is all the challenges that we impose on ourselves as humans, all those human obstacles, those political obstacles that we ourselves put in the way. Mm. That's our show. We'll close with Sunvolt's Down to the Wire off of the 2009 American Central Dust. Thanks to David Wallace Wells for joining us via telephone to discuss his new book, The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. Thank you, David. Thank you. David's got many articles and essays to read, and, this is no stra- and he's no stranger to radio, podcast, or television interviews. Seek these out. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Wes Martin is our executive producer and tonight's studio engineer as well. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Wake up to the Bill Street blues. Can't shake the news all the way to the big dawn. The intrigues of the new royalty and the believers in the afterlife share the same gambler's pages. 
Cobblestone streets saw three sovereign flags They raised their glasses to conquest a nation Still pawns playing out the legacy Of long dead industry titans and haters 